Welcome to Eye on the Ball. This is Garrett Rands. I'm here with Pastor Tim Everett. Pastor Tim, hell no. <laughs> hell yes. Or uh, according it, to Scripture, I believe. I think it's it's taught. Yeah. Okay. Or hell maybe. Well, I, I, I'm I'm coming down on the yes side. Yeah. Oh, all right. Think, yeah. <laughs> so we have a traditional understanding of hell. Um, what is that traditional understanding of of what we think hell is like? Yeah, that's where I may differ from um, what a lot of people grew up, um, say, around here in the Western world, believe about uh, eternal conscious torment. Uh, That's something that I don't believe that the Bible teaches. I think a lot of it comes from extra biblical material that we can talk about. But uh, I do want to emphasize that that I do believe the, the Scripture does teach in the reality of a hell, uh, Matthew 25 talks about there's an ultimate destiny for the devil and his angels. It teaches that, um, that those who reject uh, the grace and mercy of God will, uh, will join Satan. Matthew 25 uh, is called a place of darkness and sadness. Matthew 22, a place of fire. Matthew 5, 22, a place of torment, a place of destruction. So, you know, hell is certainly in Scripture. Now, I disagree with those who say that Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. Uh, they forget that nearly all of his stories begin with the kingdom of heaven is like or the kingdom of God is like. So, you know, he emphasized heaven, but certainly, you know, Christ did emphasize that there is the resurrection of the dead and there's judgment, and those who are not covered by his grace do go to that terrifying place called hell. But I do believe the church, particularly in the Western world, has taught falsely this concept of the eternal conscious torment that I want to, to look into this morning and, and, um, and let the, the, the listeners hear what I believe to be a more biblical version of, of, of what hell is like. Okay, so what are these extra biblical teachings on hell that, that kind of crept their way into our uh, Christian interpretation of, of it? I think uh, we undermine the role that uh, Greek mythology and Greek thought, you know, Greek philosophy played into the Western world. You know, talking about those of us that come from Europe. Um, Also, um, certainly uh, the influence of the Romans who who mainly just sort of copied the Greeks. They just renamed Greek gods. And, you know, Romans were more about law and order, you know, not about philosophy and religion. But uh, but certainly, uh, our Western world is comprised of uh, Greek myth- mythology and thought, uh, Roman law, and then Jewish piety or Jewish religion. And uh, a lot of that got mixed up together, I believe, in the medieval Catholic Church. And then also, um, you know, two uh, uh, really big enemies of Paul, for example, was uh, were the, the Jewish traditionalists, the Judaizers, who, who taught that uh, that Jesus was a Jewish reformer, that you just tacked on Jesus on top of the law. And uh, he emphasized that it was Christ and Christ alone, that Christ came to fulfill the law. But then uh, during the latter part of Paul's ministry, he really fought the Gnostics, uh, as well as John. Uh, when we read in First John and also the book of Revelations, he's fighting uh, this group of um, Greek thinkers who sort of synthesized together Christianity and Greek uh, philosophy, uh, talked about the division of the body, body, soul, and spirit, 
you know, that when you die, the Greeks and Greek mythology, the body goes down and the spirit goes up. And a lot of that got mixed in with Gnosticism. And uh, the early uh, Christian writers really fought the Gnostic Gospels and kept them out of our canon of Scripture, but they were very influential in the life of the early church. So when you get to Augustine, for example, Augustine, um, what does that be, about the 7th century? Um, uh, Augustine's teachings really fused together the New Testament with uh, Plato, uh, the Greek. You know, he loved Plato, and uh, they called him um, the, the school of Augustine Neoplatonists, who, who sort of combined a lot of Greek philosophy, particularly on the immortality of the soul, uh, the division of the body and the soul and the spirit, and, and then all the teachings of Hades, when we think of Greek mythology, like uh, the underworld and whatnot, a lot of that got mixed in to the Christian understanding and uh, the teachings on hell, and um, and he cast a long shadow of the church. Uh, later on, Aquinas became the the chief uh, uh, Catholic interpreter of the New Testament, and he was big on on uh, Aristotle. You know, there was Socrates, then Plato, then Aristotle, then Alexander the Great. And um, and so both of them, in my opinion, really kind of mixed up Christian theology with Greek myth- mythology and Greek philosophy. And so a lot of what I think we believe is biblical is actually um, just a fusion in the Western world of, um, of Greek mythology and, and philosophy, particularly on the subject of hell. And it's interesting that, you know, the Catholic Church split— um, over a thousand years ago, between Eastern, uh, Eastern and Western Orthodox, and uh, they don't have the concept in Eastern. You know, Constantinople now Istanbul became kind of the center of the Eastern Orthodox Church, and uh, they have never really advocated eternal conscious torment in hell like the Western Church has. And of course, on top of that, there was the creation, I believe, of purgatory, which to me is not biblical. And um, and so there was a lot of pressure in medieval Catholicism to um, to believe in this fusion of Greek thought and Christianity, and and they would use as a club if you don't you know give money to our building program, <laughs> you know then then you're in danger of eternal conscious torment in hell, um, you know the selling of indulgences and whatnot. And then, um, you know, the Reformation came along, and, and uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin and Zwingli and all these guys pretty much adopted that medieval Catholic view of eternal conscious torment. And, and so where a lot, um, where the Bible offset a lot of traditional Catholic teachings of the Reformation, it just didn't seem to happen with the subject of hell. So we've, we've, we've had this thing kind of happen in our society and and we have speakers and and, and sometimes preachers that mm-hmm. that preach that well you're going to live forever you're either going to live in heaven or hell, and so we ha- automatically in our mind even though they didn't say all of this in our mind if we live forever in heaven or hell then we're going to be conscious, and so what you're saying is that we may be in hell but not be conscious if if we don't have the grace of God to cover us to, to be in yeah, heaven. Uh, I believe, um, let, let me just go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Uh, there was the tree of life. You know, as long as uh, Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, the tr- tree of life sustained them. 
and uh, they remained alive. You know, we think that God created them not for death, but created them for life. You know, they had the potential of eternal life as long as they were in presence of the of the tree of life, whether that's a metaphor or a real tree. I think it was a real tree. But uh, when they sinned, they were kicked out of the garden, and the tree of life was guarded because um, God did not want them in an evil condition, having eaten from the tree of knowledge and chosen to live in their own world, a humanistic world, and not the world that was, I, that was ideally created to them for them by their, their creator. Uh, he tried to protect them from the tree of life because he didn't want them us to live forever in an evil state. So... Um, I don't believe in the immortality of the soul. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe that we were created with a potential for eternal life, but that sin ends that potential, and the wages of sin is death. The Bible's very clear. The soul that sins shall die. And, uh, and so I do believe, though, that the Bible teaches the resurrection of the dead for judgment, and that those of us who are born again, those of us who've been saved by the, you know, the redeemed blood of Christ, that, you know, we're, we receive immortality. Uh, some would say we receive immortality when we die and go to heaven. Uh, I believe that immortality begins when we truly become born again. We're born into the kingdom. So, you know, I don't believe in um, this division. The, he- the Hebrews never really taught the concept of separation of body and spirit. They taught a oneness. And, um, and John uh, and Paul emphasized that Jesus was completely was in the flesh as well as the Spirit God. You know, he was God and, and Spirit in the flesh, and that he's going to return um, bodily, you know, the bodily uh, return of Christ. And so, you know, the Greeks would, would teach that the body's bad, you know, the Spirit is good, and there's a separation of the two. You know, the body winds up in, you know, in hell and the spirit in heaven, all this kind of thing that sort of got fused into the church. But um, I really don't believe in the, the concept of, of uh, once we left the Garden of Eden, man became mortal. And immortality can only come through the grace gift of salvation through Christ. And thus, um, you know, the, the lost person does not live forever, even in the conscious torment of, of hell. You know, there's, they're of a finite nature. And um, it was a surprise to me to find out that, that um, you know, the Bible usually in reference to hell talks, calls it, and four times in the book of Revelations, it's called uh, the second death. Um, a lot of uh, verses in scripture, you know, have to do with um, uh, destruction. Even John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so, you know, there, there's verse after verse in reference to, um, um, to hell. It's the idea of perishing or the idea of, of being destroyed. Now, um, I guess my view of hell would fall under the category of uh, conditionalism, and it's the idea that there's a duration of hell that at some point comes to an end, uh, and that can be dependent upon um the judgment of our life, just like there's rewards in heaven, you know, there's penalties in hell. And so the state of, um, you know, the 16-year-old lost boy that gets killed in a car wreck, um, his um, experience of hell may not be the same as Hitler's, <laughs> you know. Right. But, um, you know, in the Bible, it talks about hell as being a, a place of fire. It talks about hell as being a place of darkness. That's a contradiction 
unless you think in terms of a fire that does its work and then goes out, and then the rest, the, the remainder, you know, is darkness. So, um, so anyway, um, this is a, a subject that raises up the idea that a lot about what we believe about the Bible can be traditionalism and not biblical. And uh, we have a tendency to read the Bible backwards. We start with our culture, and we start with our tradition, and so we go to the Bible and proof text it. We find a, a verse of Scripture here, a verse of Scripture there, seems to prove what we believe, and we build a doctrine on it. Uh, that's called um, eisegesic, you know, the idea of reading yourself and your culture into the Scripture. But we're to be exegetes, you know, we're to, to go to the Bible and say, what does the Bible say about this subject? And hopefully we wrap our mind around that and believe what the Bible says and not impose our beliefs on Scripture. I really don't believe if, if, if you were picking up a, an accurately translated Bible today or if you could read it in the Hebrew and the Greek and were to not have any understanding of Christianity and read from Genesis to Revelations, I don't see how you would come up with this concept of eternal conscious torment in hell forever and ever and ever. Now, being raised as we have, you can go back and pull some verses, I believe, out of context that may kind of proof text what we believe, but it's not a consistent reading If you take them out of context. Take them out of context, I think. Well, and then we see, you know, we, we see in movies, we see in, in television these, these concepts of that, you know, yeah. e- eternal conscious living in hell. And I mean, even in cartoons, even in you know children's movies, mm-hmm. they have some references that are like that. And so it is very, I can see where mythology mm-hmm. and, and right. the influence of the world culture has, has infiltrated uh, truth and, and scripture and warped mm-hmm. our, our brain's concept of what hell is. And our brains are so fragile. You know, they're so easily programmed. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we are nothing more in terms of, uh, of a physiological aspect. We are nothing more than a body that has electrical impulses going through it. And we have the ability for people that know what they're doing to program us. And, and we see example after example of this throughout the course of history. Hitler, for example, mm-hmm. was great at programming people to, yeah. to, to fall in line with his ideals, yeah. even though they were so out there. You know, they were, yeah. so, they were so out there, and yet he was successful in doing that, at least to some extent. Yeah. And, you know, praise God that that didn't last forever. Um, so yeah, yeah, me, that, that brings up, uh, let me interrupt just for a second. Um, that's a good point. You know, we don't have to go back just to Greek mythology. There's a whole mythology in the modern world, you know, that can confirm our choices. And there's so much pressure to conform to what everybody else is thinking and believing. I heard about a study the other day of zebras. Uh, you know, when you think about animals that camouflage themselves in nature, um, zebras, their black and white stripes don't camouflage them to the tundra. But in a herd of zebra, you know, they're all camouflaged in with each other. And they say, for example, a lion's eyesight is just a a confusion of black and white. When they see a herd of zebra, they can't focus on any particular zebra, and uh, they attack attack individuals. So at one time, they were... um, Biologists were doing a study of zebras, and so they painted red stripe on a zebra in which to study. And the zebra with a red stripe on it would be attacked and killed by lions because they could focus on that individual zebra that didn't camouflage in with the herd. And um, 
that made me think about how we're tempted to camouflage in with the herd mentality. And whenever we differentiate ourselves, we're attacked. And so, you know, this idea of how has there been this group think through the years on eternal conscious torment and hell, um, we don't want to stand out from the crowd. You know, back in medieval Catholicism days, you could be burned at the stake. I mean, it's kind of like if you don't believe in eternal conscious burning in hell, we'll burn you at the stake right now. And, um, and then even today, you know, like in the evangelical church, it can be an unpopular position uh, because um, that's the way we've all been raised. And so, you know, it may um, endanger our standing with our denomination. It may endanger our standing with our congregation. If we read the Bible, but not from the through the lens of culture, you know, or tradition. So, you and that's know, one dif- dif- you know differentiating fact between say an ev- evangelical Christian and and the majority of denominations that are here. If I'm not mistaken, the Greek Orthodox Church, and I don't want to speak out of context here. Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with Greek Orthodox Church, mm-hmm. but they believe that Scripture doesn't stand alone. That you have to have the church's interpretation of Scripture to really understand it, and that the two kind of have to go together. Whereas we believe that Scripture does stand alone Mm -hmm. and that the Holy Spirit gives us the guidance to understand Scripture and what it means. And so there's this independent thought. The the idea of independent thought by itself Mm -hmm. is a little bit dangerous, right? I mean, not not just in the church, like you Mm -hmm. said, but also in culture. And and we look at it on on say in politics for example we, we see that on both sides of the aisle if you're extremely conservative, and you're you're pro life, and you are you know against gay marriage and you are um, or I should say for traditional marriage and you are for the individual and you are for um, the concept of capitalism and and kind of you you eat what you kill and that every everyone should work. Well, that's an extreme view these days. Mm-hmm. And then on, on the other hand, um, at least going back a few years, the idea of socialism was an absolute extreme. You know, and I think that's one of the reasons why maybe Bernie Sanders came under so much fire. Even though if you listen to the man, and I'm not advocating for socialism here, but if you listen to the man, he's got some heart in it. He's got heartfelt reasons for why he thinks that socialism is the answer to things. And he has, has been rejected by by the Democratic Party for the most part, you know he he lost the election to Hillary Clinton um, the last time around, and and you know this this past time he lost to Biden. Um, whether or not you believe he actually lost, or whether it was you know kind of all prearranged, doesn't really matter. The fact was he was outcast for being open and vocal, and it, honestly admitting that he is a socialist, mm-hmm. and so he was rejected on that side, and then you have others that are rejected on the other side of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea of independent thought is dangerous. Right. And, um, you know, you, you stand a chance, or say I do here today as an evangelical, uh, for someone says, okay, he doesn't believe in eternal conscious torment, so he doesn't believe in hell. And that sounds like a cultist to me because one distinguishing feature of a lot of modern cults is they don't believe in hell. Or um, maybe even worse in the South is he sounds like a liberal, <laughs> you know. Right. And uh, and there's that slippery slope issue that if you don't accept this part of our faith tradition, then where is it going to stop? So if you don't believe in eternal conscious torment in hell, the next thing you know, you're not going to believe in hell. 
and uh, you're going to be a, become a universalist where everybody ultimately gets saved, and and before you know it, you know you don't believe in anything. So uh, there is that concern, and I think that's a, a check on a lot of people's independent thinking. Is you know they're afraid of where it may take them, which would be a lack of trust that God's word is God's word. I mean, if we have fully full confidence that Jesus is the truth and that the Bible is the truth, then uh, we ought to have an open mind as we go and study it and um, and try to empty ourselves of our biases, you know, in our traditions in order to fully understand what God is saying, but uh, or at least understand your biases. When I open up the Bible, I need to understand that I'm reading it as a, a 21st century Southern American white male and uh, who's conservative. So that's kind of my biases that can uh, give me a, a worldview lens that prevent me from seeing the scriptures it is because it was written in the Middle East, not you know in an Eastern world, not a Western world. So, um, but yeah, that's that's a concern, um, and I think that that this concept of eternal conscious torment only persists out of ignorance. And by ignorance, I don't mean stupidity, but I mean that we ignore that topic because we don't. We it's it's just unimaginable to us, the idea of eternal conscious torment in hell. When I uh, touch my tip of my finger on the stove and it burns my finger, you know, the idea of burning all over eternally conscious, that's that's inconceivable. And so we just sort of compartmentalize and put it over here and say, now I'm supposed to believe that, but I'm just not going to think about it. And I think the danger is that it leads to sort of a practical universalism, the idea that you know, Uncle Joe, he never had much for the Bible. He hadn't, didn't have much for the Lord, you know, never went to church. But um, I just can't believe he's in, in eternal conscious torment. You know, I think he's saved somehow, and he's up there fishing with Simon Peter today. And uh, we have kind of that, you know, that the, the hell that we conceive of is reserved for the the Hitlers and the, you know, the— uh, Genghis Khan's and the executives that work for pharmaceuticals or <laughs> right. whoever we look at as being the worst of humanity. So, um, but, you know, it's important for us to, to understand the Bible for what it says and also understand the Bible for what it doesn't say. And um, let, let me, I've got a, um, a study that I did on how many times the word hell is translated into modern translations. Can I, let me, let me share that. Okay. Um, the King James Bible, uh, which has changed a lot since its original day. A lot of people say, I just believe in reading the King James Bible. It's the only true English translation or whatnot. Well, it's gone through a lot of revisions because words have changed meanings a lot in the last 400 years or whatnot. But, uh, and what we look at is today's King James Version. Um, hell is interpreted 54 times in Scripture. Uh, 31 times in the Old Testament and 23 times in the New Testament from from words that I'll mention. The Old Testament, the word is sheol, you know, that gets interpreted in the King James Version as hell. Um, But the New King James Version has reduced from 31 times in the Old Testament to 19 times that the word sheol is translated hell, and from 23 times in the New Testament to 13 times. Uh, Different words for hell in the New Testament, Gehenna, you know, the, the, the trash dump outside of Jerusalem that Jesus illustrated hell as being like. Uh, one time this word Tartarus used in Second Peter 2.4, I think. 
um, and it's kind of like uh, kind of like an underworld thing. And uh, but then the word Hades is sort of the Greek equivalent to Sheol. And um, and really, in most usages of the Bible, it's referencing the grave, you know, in the Old Testament, the New Testament. All right. So um, so anyway, um, say the the New King James Version translates those words into English thirty two times that word for hell. The New International Version and the American Standard Version only use the word hell thirteen times in the whole Bible, zero times in the Old Testament, and thirteen times in the New Testament. Uh, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, that's the Southern Baptist version, uh, only uses the word hell 11 times in the Bible, all in the New Testament. And the uh, same is true for the Revived Standard Version, the New Living Translation, the Amplified. And then a lot of versions of Scripture today, like um, the New American Bible Revives Edition, the Roman Catholic Version, there's no English word hell used in Scripture. Uh, what they use... In like the New American Standard um, and these other newer translations, they'll let that word Sheol stand in its place. So when, you know, David says that even if I make my bed in Sheol, O Lord, thou art with me. You know, obviously he's talking about the grave and, and, and prophesying toward the fact that the Lord, Jesus, knew what it was to be in a grave, you know. and, and uh, But, you know, so it's it doesn't make sense to say even if I go to hell, Lord, you're going with me. So obviously that word Sheo in Hades is typically referencing the grave or death. Um, so a lot of it has to do with uh, the, the King James Version um, interpreting Sheo and Hades always, always as hell that has led to this understanding in English-speaking world of, uh, of um, some misinterpretations, misapplications of, of the word hell. So what would you say to that individual that says, those are just watered-down versions? They're just taking hell yeah. out of Scripture so, so that it, it fits in and it's not mm-hmm. as harsh. Yeah, right. And, um, and you know, that I learned early on in my, my pastoral days uh, not to argue the King James Version with diehards who, uh, you know, they're dead set that it's— uh, you know, uh, I think they believe that the whole world is English speaking, and the only way to understand the real Bible then would be to learn English and read the King James Version. But you know, there's been a um, you know that's a, um, a teaching for another day. But um, there's been a lot of translations, earlier translations of Scripture uncovered since the King James Version that gives us uh, a little bit more accurate understanding of. Uh, of uh, the Greek and the Hebrew, um, but well, and would, wouldn't it stand to reason that a more accurate interpretation of ancient Hebrew would be modern Hebrew as opposed to going from ancient Hebrew to English? Yeah, go right from, because I mean, there's there's <laughs> yeah. going to be some words that are the same. Yeah, <laughs> right. So maybe with something like the Jewish Bible, mm-hmm. do you, are you familiar with what what words does the Jewish Bible? use that. Yeah. Well, uh, an interesting story. I was at a, a Jewish funeral, and uh, the rabbi made the comment. She said that officially we're to have no position on the afterlife. Um, I personally believe in an afterlife, but as a rabbi in the, uh, I guess be, she'd probably be the Reformed Jewish church. And, um, and I understand that when you read the Old Testament, and um, there's really not much in the Old Testament that has to do with the afterlife. Uh, unless you interpret Sheol as as as, uh, as hell, 
as being uh, the place where the lost go. Really, the Old Testament asks questions that are only answered in the New Testament about the afterlife. And so um, it's amazing to me as you study the Bible on the subject of hell um, how little specifics, you know, come from it. Hardly any in much. the Old Testament. We don't know much. And uh, and I think it's important um, for us to, you know, be strong believers in what the Bible clearly teaches. And to, this is an ugly word in the church, the word agnostic. You know, that's only next to atheism. But we need to be honest that we don't know what the Bible does not clearly teach. There's a lot of mysteries in the, in the Word of God that are above our pay grade, and it'd be better for us to say, I don't know, than to, uh, and to teach something, to that's, teach something wrong. that's wrong. And, and if, we're, if we've been wrong uh, about this concept of eternal conscious torment in hell, then just think how we've mischaracterized God you know, uh, here in the Western world these last 1,500 years. So speaking of character, what do you think a person's personal interpretation of hell says about their understanding of God's character? Yeah, uh, good good question. Um, you know, God informs us that we're to love our enemies, uh, we're to turn the other cheek, we're to go the extra mile. Um, you know, the first question man asks in Scripture is, am I my brother's keeper? And the Bible answers yes to that and extends brotherhood to neighbor and even to enemy. And so, you know, would God be telling us here on earth that we're to love our enemies when he, on the other hand, has created this special place and he's keeping his enemies alive for eternity so that he can torture them. You know, what does that say about the, the nature of God? And, um, and has, um, have unbelievers in the Western world rejected the God of Scripture? Or are they rejecting oftentimes the mischaracterization of who we've made God out to be? Uh, I think sometimes we've created a caricature of who God is and a false image of who God is. So uh, this is a very important understanding for us to have um, because God's character is at stake. And um, and I think um, it was a merciful act of God to ban Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life so that in their evil state they didn't live forever. You know, we see someone in the evil state of the last stages of cancer or something in their deathbed, and when they pass on, we say, you know, thank God their suffering's over. Of course, we know, again, I believe in a literal hell, and their suffering is not over if they're they're lost and, um, and they're not going to heaven. But uh, on the other hand, um, God created a place where evil can be destroyed. And, uh, and that's why I think that the Bible typically speaks of hell as a second death or a place of destruction or a place of perishing. Um, you know, there's a couple of places in Scripture where hell is, it talks about the unquenchable fire. Um, but also the Scripture speaks of, in Jude, of Sodom and Gomorrah's unquenchable fire. Uh, if you go over to the Dead Sea area today where we think Sodom and Gomorrah was, certainly there's no fire still burning but it's a reference to the fact that the fire did its job. It burned up all of its fuel, and then it burned out, and uh, the result was a dead area. Uh, also, in the Old Testament, I'm trying to think where it was uh, stated, but it says that the region of Edom 
was burned with an unquenchable fire. Well, you can go visit Edom today, and there's no fire burning in that area that was once Edom. But it, just saying that the Babylonians' army did its job by burning up Edom. So when it talks about hell as an unquenchable fire, uh, we don't have to surmise from that that it burns forever. Again, also hell is a place of darkness. It just means that it does its effective job. And um, Let me ask you this. So we, we have... At least, and I use the New American Standard Version. Uh-huh. You know, that's yeah, very that's accurate. Yeah, been my my understanding mm-hmm. is that it's the most accurate translation of the the Greek and the Hebrew from it, word to word, as opposed to like NIV that kind of does it clause by clause or thought by thought. So yeah, right. Okay. So we, I've seen the word abyss, and it it being used particularly in reference, uh, if I'm not mistaken, when Jesus threw the demons <laughs> out of. You know, out of the man and into the pigs. Yeah. You know, they were begging to not be thrown into the abyss. So is the uh, is the abyss a different place than what we would think of as hell? Is it the same place? Is is there an eternal place for Satan and his demons? I mean, yeah. what what do we know about that? Yeah, uh, that's that's an uh, interesting point. Uh, interesting story too. Um, and uh, I think you're onto something there. I think the demons begged not to be thrown into that ultimate place of uh, destruction where there would be no hope at all for them being thrown into the pigs. And I don't understand this, you know, but um, it's, it was not the abyss. It was not the ultimate place. Of course, we believe that, that Satan will be locked up for a thousand years, um, not in the ultimate place of the abyss, but, you know, he'll try to make a comeback. And that's when, we, you know, those who are premillennial dispensationalists believe the battle of Armageddon will be fought and whatnot. But um, I do think the abyss is that final place of judgment. Uh, a lot of times we read, um, uh, let me see if I can find it in uh, Revelations where it talks about um, God throwing uh, the devil into. Um, it says the devil was. Dis- who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And um, that's that's one of the traditionalists. That's talking about the devil and talking about the antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, A lot of people would equate that also to any who die outside the grace of Christ, that they would have the same, eternity is the devil Satan. right but uh okay. but that's just referencing you know the devil the antichrist and the false prophets so so scripture um, does teach that satan and and his fallen angels and demons they will be eternally in well a place. that verse seems to indicate now there's some other verses though talk about destruction so um the best commentary on scripture is scripture and you know you can draw they're they're good bible believing People who love God, who come down on both sides of that issue, and uh, thankfully it's a non-essential issue for our salvation. Absolutely, but, uh, amen. Know, that, yeah, that's thank goodness because if we had to understand all the yeah. things of God in order uh-huh. to be saved, if it wasn't yeah. dependent on His grace and it was dependent upon our knowledge, mm-hmm. there wouldn't be many people going to heaven, right? <laughs> right. I mean, how how can we as humans yeah. completely understand things that are that are of God? Mm-hmm. You know, and and right. mm-hmm. it's. Uh, it's it's comforting to know that it's yeah. grace that saves us mm-hmm. and not knowledge, not our theology. Right. We can get things wrong in theology, some things, mm-hmm. like a lot of things, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. the, the, the non-essential things like this, right. yeah. we can get it wrong and still be saved and not be 
in danger of, quote, losing our salvation mm -hmm. because right. we have a wrong interpretation, a wrong understanding of what hell is. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. So what, um, you, you talked about this a little bit before, but what do you think the cost is of a person doing their own study on hell and, and rejecting maybe what their pastor is teaching them? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, there still is a cost. Now, thankfully, it's not the cost in our society of being burned at the stake or, you know, being put on the wheel or, you know, we think of the Inquisition of the Catholic Church and all these awful tortures that were devised to punish those who stepped outside of uh, the church of traditions. And a lot of that torture was carried over into the, the Protestant church. John Calvin uh, burned at the stake, Servetus, a man who disagreed with him on the Trinity. Um, so, you know, that was still became a problem with the Protestant church. But, um, but even in our society, um, I think this whole doctrine of eternal conscious torment is ignored, and we don't teach on hell because of the fear of being misunderstood, um, of being labeled a cultist or being labeled a liberal or being, um, you know, the, the sleepy believer in the pew that kind of hears you calling into question eternal conscious torment, so their conclusion is our pastor doesn't believe in hell, you know. Um, so there's that danger. I think a lot of times we just ignore it. It's, it could affect us um, in our um, ministries or our careers if uh, we're out of touch. Uh, but, um, but I think also it, a bigger danger than that is um, I mentioned the slippery slope argument, and I do think the eternal conscious torment of hell doctrine led to the universalism that we see in the modern liberal church. I think that, um, again, um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of mainstream Protestant churches, uh, the concept of eternal, it was kind of like the choice of eternal conscious torment in hell or universalism, and a lot of them have chosen universalism. And I see that creeping into the, the evangelical church, too, where um, there's a pressure of, of preachers at the funerals of people who never showed any kind of a life change for Christ to sort of preach them into heaven by talking about, you know, well, they're up there now. You know, they're in, you know. Uh, we we want to have, we good, thoughts about have good thoughts about them. Right. So um, a real... Um, a real uh, consequence of me studying this in Scripture and coming to believe in the conditional view that that the lost are resurrected and judged and 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 uh, punished in hell for just a duration of time has led me to believe that fewer people are saved than I may have previously thought of. Um, and Billy you know, Graham said that, right? I mean, that was one of you know. I mean, I, I say that he says that. That's what I've heard. What I've been taught. I don't. I haven't seen a clip of it or heard mm -hmm. an audio tape. But one of the things that he said is, you know, eighty percent of people that go to church are lost. Yeah, and uh, or seventy and, or whatever yeah, the number and, was. And, and you know, and so um, you know, if you believe in eternal conscious um, torment, then you're likely to baptize your baby at a dedication with the idea that this is saving my child from that state. Or, you know, in an evangelical church, the five-year-old raises his hand at Vacation Bible School that he wants to become a Christian. And then all of his life, you know, he's been inoculated with a mild form of religion that keeps him immune from the real thing. Um, so I think that 
we, um, when we have this idea of this unimaginable hell, that we imagine that lost people are in heaven as a uh, backlash of that. And, um, and it gives us a false sense of security that someone who's never shown any life change as being a Christian, you know, is going to heaven. Um, so that, that's a concept. I, I worry more about that than I do about what people think about me in terms of this belief, you know, whether it will cost me something with my ministry or, or reduce me in the, um, you know, in the imagination of my membership or whatnot. But. Well, I think I think one thing that it's safe to say is that we need to be studying Scripture on our own, not taking your word for it, not taking somebody else's word yeah. for it, but having that personal relationship with Christ ourselves yeah. and studying His Word and and coming to our own conclusions based on Scripture mm-hmm. and not on hearsay and not on movies and mm-hmm. other things like that. Amen. I'm going to wrap this up and, yeah. and look, we um we we've got something going here. We're having a good time. We're going to come back and talk about (laughs) financial things on our next episode. Hey, look forward to that. Yeah, thank you, Garrett. Yeah.